Today's episode is brought to you by the Index of Self-Destructive Acts, which Lisa Tadeo says is bound to become a must-read of our time. Sweeping in scope, yet meticulous in its construction, the novel is a remarkable family portrait and a masterful evocation of New York City and its institutions. Through an inextricably linked cast of characters, author Christopher Beha traces the passing of the torch from the old establishment to the new meritocracy and explores how each generation's failure helped land us where we are today. Nell Zink says, It's a book's worth of thoughtful essays folded into a kick-ass novel. And Kirkus adds in a starred review that its breadth, ambition, and command are refreshing. The Index of Self-Destructive Acts is out May 5th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Back when I interviewed the essayist and translator Elliot Weinberger, I asked him about an essay he wrote called Freedom on the March where he recounts a senior advisor to George W. Bush saying to the journalist Ron Suskind that people like Suskind were members of quote-unquote the reality-based community, those who believe that solutions emerge from judicious study of discernible reality. However, the Bush advisor explained, that's not the way the world really works anymore. We're an empire now, and when we act... We create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality, we'll act again, creating other new realities, which you can study too. And that's how things will sort out. We're history's actors, and you, all of you, will be left to just study what we do. Elliot Weinberger goes on to summarize, This may well be the clearest expression yet of the Bush Doctrine. To become enraged by particulars the daily slaughter in Iraq, the prison torture, the worst economy since the Great Depression, the banana republic tricks and slanders of the electoral campaign, is to miss the point. We are no longer in quote-unquote discernible reality. I bring this up not because this is the topic of today's talk, not exactly, but because as we flash forward to our time now, where fake news has become a reality, where people prompted by comments of the President of the United States himself are injecting bleach in hopes of curing a pandemic, a very real pandemic that once recently itself was called a hoax, we truly are no longer living in a quote-unquote discernible reality or in a country that could be called a reality-based community. While today's guest poet Kevin Young is talking not about presidential hoax narratives, his talk, given at the 2014 Tin House Summer Writers Workshop called How to Write a Hoax Poem, can't help but be in conversation with the hoax reality we live in today. Kevin Young looks at some of the more notable poetry hoaxes, taking a look at the secret history of poems that were conceived to deceive. Young is not looking at these poems simply as amusing curiosities. It doesn't take long before such an examination of the history of a poem hoax becomes about larger false narratives in American society. Young also suggests that by looking at how the hoax poem works, we may better understand our own assumptions and learn how to subvert them in our writing. What is there to be gleaned by examining the poet 
who brazenly inhabits the other. What can that tell us about, quote unquote, the self in our writing or the way others get othered? Whether you know Kevin Young as director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture or as poetry editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Poetry Podcast or as the author of many award-winning books from the National Book Award finalist in poetry, Jelly Roll, A Blues, to his Annis Field Wolf Book Award winning work of nonfiction, Bunk, The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarists, Phonies, Post Facts, and Fake News, or whether you're meeting him today for the first time, the longer you listen to Kevin Young, the more these poetry hoaxes become not just about the hoaxes or about poetry, but about all of us. Here's Kevin Young's talk on how to write a hoax poem. In 1972, the once well-known novelist and somewhat successful poet Frederick Prokosh sought to sell a complete set of the rare books he made in the early 1930s. Then, Prokosh had caused to have printed a series of undeniably beautiful pamphlets, at times containing his own poetry, but mainly the work of those he admired, from W.H. Auden to T.S. Eliot to Dickinson and Hart Crane known now as the butterfly books because of their gorgeous, colorful, handmade paper covers, these small chapbooks, some literally matchbook size, Prokosh would frequently use to curry favor, sending the authors poems of theirs he picked and published as gifts with entreating letters that inevitably asked the recipients to sign and return a few. Many did, and the books, always artif with artificially reduced limitations, became ever more rare and valued. Take the colophon, that paragraph at the back of a book that explains how it was printed, that accompanies the small limitation of his two poems by Eliot. This is what it says. 22 copies printed for the author, five on arches, which is kind of paper, numbered one through five, five on Normandy, numbered Roman numeral one through five, five on Bremen, uh, numbered A through E, five on Brussels parchment, numbered capital A through E, and two on red Florentine numbered Roman numeral 10 and 20. While in some way an act of seduction, it was also a way of forging entree into a literary community, that sacred space. If he couldn't write his way in, he'd gift it. Even if the colophon itself misled, the books are not actually printed for the author, but for Prokosh, such gifts were tolerated even enjoyed by the recipients. I bought a copy of two poems uh, for Eliot, where I, and, I, and it's at Emory University where I curate a large poetry library, and Eliot has signed that copy to re-gift it to someone else. The butterfly books were the gift that kept on giving. By 1972, it had been some time since the literary success of Prokash's de debut novel, The Asiatics, which came out in 1935. The labeled fiction, the book was taken as an actual guide of sorts to Asia, a place Prokosh had never visited. He wouldn't, of course, be the first to invent villages and villagers, rituals and rescues in a far-off, quote, orient. And while he never claimed it accurate or even realistic, it is called Asiatic, not Asian, its success as a bestseller was bound up with these familiar notions. At the same time, the book was praised by everyone from Camus and Andre Gide, who called it, quote, an authentic masterpiece, to Eliot himself. 
I was thinking later, I was like, I guess that gift worked, you know. Um, in a fashion, <laughs> Prokash's butterfly books and his Asiatic novels, he wrote a couple others that were also bestsellers, realized the desirability of the exotic and that rarity could be cultivated and captured, mounted like a butterfly, even forged. After an initial successful sale of the set of these books at Sotheby's in 1968, he tried it again in 1972, and he sold another set, not just of books from the 30s, which of course were always a kind of unauthorized original, but what turned out to be recent forgeries he had pretended to print decades before. These printings made the previous pirating literal. Some of the fakes feature elegant calligraphy, it appears, by Prokash himself. One is a poem called Lily that he claimed um, Gertrude Stein, who he did actually know, gave him. Um, and then he gave the uh, manuscript away. So he was printing it in uh, the 60s, pretending he had printed it in the 30s. Uh, and it was a po it's an awful poem. I was going to read it to you, but I said, I'll save the kind of good hoaxes um, for you guys. Um, but it's fascinating that he, he even launched this as a, uh, you know, thing. Um, the only copy I've ever seen um, is at Yale's library, and I've only seen pictures of it. And um, it has his signature maybe 10 times on it. It's like he's over-authenticating the fake of it, you know, um, after it was caught. When confronted with the fact of his fiction, Prokash stalled, avoided, and admitted only partial blame, and issued half apologies to the bookseller buyers. This is what he said in a letter. It is difficult for me to know how I can apologize to you for the silly and irresponsible business of my mendacious poetry pamphlets. What then seemed a merely mischievous prank, I now realize as a totally idiotic and irresponsible. Setting aside the notion from Martina Spada that the first poem was a curse and the second poem an apology. Is poetry always a kind of prank? Recent books like Pranksters, uh, subtitled Making Mischief in the Modern World, which is from this year, or Forged, Why Fakes are the Great Art of Our Age, from last year, seeks a champion hoaxes and fakes as clever little insurrections. Forged avoids the encyclopedic nature of the majority of these books uh, about hoaxes, whose canon can come to seem so familiar as to remove their strangeness. Hoaxes can become denatured, like the truth they seem ambivalent about at best. They can even become exercises in contrarianism with a book like Prankster saying that you say hoax, I say prank, can't we all get along? This equivocation is measured by the term hoaxster, which has crept into the language as a kind of cutesy cousin to hoaxer, maxed up with prankster. But where the novel is omnivorous, a form that cannibalizes other forms, from letters to hymnals to confessions, and if, as I've said elsewhere, the memoir is promiscuous, the hoax is a form that infects other forms. Memoir, journalism, radio plays, film, even poetry. It's successful for a time, at least, because it's contagious, or better yet, parasitic. Too often, though, it ends up destroying its hoax. Um, I compare a bit the hoax to the long con, um, and I, I love that about it. Um, and it I will just mention a little bit about what I call the five stages of grift. Um, the first is denial, denial, denial. Then redirection, admission of a lesser crime, the error excused away as stemming from haste or emotional turmoil. You see that with Prokash. Or a claim of parody. Then finally, in the face of overwhelming evidence, a full 
if half-hearted confession meant to redeem, though inevitably dogged by some of the same difficulties with telling the truth that got the hoaxer or politician here in the first place. What follows in this uh, is the publication of a new novel, if at all possible, or book-length confession, or the Campbell Platter, reprinting of, say, a disgraced fake memoir, um, with, now with novel and small type below the title. But unlike the long con, the hoax, which is usually pitched for an audience of one, the hoax, I'm sorry, yeah, the long con is usually pitched to an audience of one. The hoax is usually pitched quite wide for an audience of anyone. But the only hoaxes that, for me, successfully remain their power after exposure are poetry hoaxes. They, too, are often pitched to an audience of one, at least initially, to an editor or a school of thought, thought hoaxable. By understanding how the hoax works and looking especially at examples of the poetry hoax, I hope to know better our own writing assumptions, habits, and hurts, and how to subvert them. For me, the hoax may sort of measure the movement into the modern, a transition that the hoax is also part, in part responsible for. What makes the modern hoax different from hoaxes of the past? If the 18th century honored through hoaxing the 19th humored, where the 19th century laughed alongside the 20th laughed at but also up its sleeve. Today, the modern hoax, say like James Fry who got it uh, on the nose yesterday over and over, um, seems to be merely deadly serious, obsessed with death and seriousness and turn all as a way of maintaining the status quo rather than subverting it the freaks and grotesqueries of the 19th century have given way to the fakes and forgeries of the 21st, where the grotesque is still with us, but instead called reality. There's poetry in all of this, or at least justice. I want to glimpse a secret history of the poem as something conceived to tempt or trick, and even to steal some of the effects of the hoax for our own work, going beyond mask or persona to the poem as a forgery of the first order. In poetry, we're often told to find a voice, when in fact we, of course, have a voice already, or I used to, um, and we need to simply trust it, how to sing with it. I also think it's better not to find one but many voices within us, to discover the ways we say what we say, not to me mention what we think. The problem with the voice of the hoax is not that it's artificial, but rather not artificial enough. It does not offer the kinds of falsetto I praised elsewhere. It is a voice not found, but taken, a lip sync, neither earned nor one's own, less reaching for a higher key than off key. Yet artificiality is part of the strange power of the poetry hoax. Most hoaxes, especially the poetry ones, are decidedly anti-modern. Um, efforts like the 1916 Spectra hoax, which I'm going to talk about for a minute, were ways of mocking the rampant isms of the 19-teens with their proverbial manifesto of the month club. The point of the poetry hoax is often to outmodern the modern in order to assert traditional poetic values. What few of the poetry hoaxers could have counted on is their anti-modern poetry's appeal for modernism. Monsters proved popular. Though the fake school of spectrism was a way of clowning the club, it became, in the end, a way of gaining forceful entry. Its poems, the poems of Spectra, are all numbered and simply called Opus 24, Opus 56. And they were composed by Witter Binner, 
and Arthur Davison Frick in a fashion grown familiar to the poetic hoax, a drunken haze of hilarity. After what William J. Smith in his book, The Spectre Hoax, describes as, quote, 10 quarts of excellent scotch in 10 days, Bitter and, Binner and Fick each took on different persona, named Emmanuel Morgan and Anne Knish, respectively. The Jewish patri, <laughs> the Jewish patri Knish, apparently chosen because of its exotic, not then obvious air. The poems mock not just imagism, modernism, and pretension, but what I call the exoticist, often behind it. Quote, I think I must have been bored in such a forest or in the tangle of a Chinese screen, Knish writes in her Opus 50, which despite its numbering is the first poem in the book. <laughs> uh, they published this book called Spectra in 1916 with an introduction by Kanish that declares things like, quote, it may be noted that to Spectra, to these reflected experiences of life as we perceive them, adheres often a tinge of humor. Occidental art, in contrast to art in the Orient, has until lately been afraid of the flash in its serious works, but a growing acquaintance with Chinese painting is surely liberating in our poets and painters a happy sense of the disproportion of man to his assumed place in the universe, a sense of the torgous, grotesque vanity of the individual. By this weapon, man helps defend his intuition of the absolute and of his own obscure but real relation to it. Um, this is gobbledygook. <laughs> Yet the hoax can take over even the hoaxer. Bitter found it especially hard to let go of the character he created as part of Spectra, writing several further series of poems as Morgan in one sequence called Pins for Wings, like Butterflies. Um, Bitter used his alter ego to pen acerbic couplets about his fellow writers. Um, and if some of the names don't resonate, um, he implies that it is they, not Morgan, who's fake. And I'll just read a couple. This is Ezra Pound, a bookworm in tights. William Alexander Percy, a fawn reciting. Corrine Roosevelt Robinson, a big stick of maple caressing a motor. Binner eventually had to kill off his alter ego, like Conan Doyle did Sherlock Holmes, to quit writing about and as him. Pins for ring, wings is so rare that the copy I tracked down um, is signed, quote, signed enviously for Thomas A. Larimore by Bittner, since I have no copy myself. Morgan is both elusive and impossible to escape. Just as the poet Anne Knish's name now sounds something akin to Betty Bagel, <laughs> it is hard to these days read the poems without anything but laughter, much less their backstory narratives which had the Spectrus uh, founded in Pittsburgh and faking tragedy in their bios, including a mysterious Hungarian past for Knish and Morgan's working in a glass, nay, crystal factory. The poem's packets were loaded with stones, but to throw, and I'll read you just a couple. If bathing were, uh, just lines, if bathing were a virtue, not a lust, I would be dirtiest. That's, that's Anne Knish. That shape, it was my shining soul, bludgeoning every sham. Oh, little ape, be glad that I can be the thing I am. That's Ed Manuel Morgan. <laughs> this is Ancanisha's Opus 80. Oh, my little house of glass, how carefully I have planted shrubbery to plume before your transparency. Life is too amorous of you. 
transfusing through and through your pains with an effulgence never knew. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I am terribly tempted to throw the stones myself. That's the poem. Um, so they published this manuscript. They let in uh, the publisher, uh, Mitchell Kennerly, on it. And um, Binner had a galley at his house, and two editors were there, and they saw it. And he thought, well, the, the jig or the gig is up. And he quickly managed to explain that he got this new book, and it was really exciting. And um, the editors asked him to review it. And so his piece in The New Republic, <laughs> reviewing his own hoax, is a paragon of self-parody. There is a new school of poets, a new term to reckon with, a new theory to comprehend, a new manner to notice, a new humor to enjoy. I'll skip ahead. Thir certainly their theory demands an art, not stopping short with direct notation by the senses, but reaching connotation of all kinds, and they are ambitious without being too solemn. But whether or not there may be meaning or magic in the book, <laughs> hilarious little moment, uh, I can promise that there is amusement in it and that it takes a challenging place among current literary impressionistic phenomena. Amusement and challenge. Binner was mocking poetry, but also tricking his magazine editor in the very notion of Pobiz. Um, it caught a number of readers, including Harriet Monroe, who published uh, some in poetry, and Arthur Kramberg um, of other, Others, which is a little more sort of avant-garde magazine that I, I think is really terrific. Um, and he had a whole issue de dedicated to the Spectric School in January 1917. Um, and I started thinking that maybe Morgan was working at a Stephen Glass factory, um, Stephen Glass being the guy who um, fakes for the New Republic 90 years later. Um, so I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, one of the interesting things that uh, happened is that, you know, they were at a party, for instance, and um, Kramberg, uh, who edited others, told uh, Witter Binner that he had friends who knew Anne Knish and she was quite a beauty. So, like, there's this kind of um, contagion. In fact, you know, everyone starts, it became a huge fad, um, the hoax. And um, it also took in other poets. And I want to mention one for a moment because she's really not well read anymore and very interesting to me. And her name is Marjorie Allen Seifert. And they recruited her to compose a set of poems as Elijah Hay. Um, she ho one hopes she tried to follow the initial impulse of that crazy half-baked Kanish preface, um, like with had other lines, like, if the spectrist wished to describe a landscape, he will not attempt a map, but will put down those winged emotions, those fantastic analogies, which the real scene awakens in his own mind. And he has a really different Elijah Hay, um, end of the spectrism. It's less absurdist, but just as funny. And this is the final poem in a sequence, and the poem's called Night, and this is the whole poem. I opened the door, and night started at me like a fool, heavy, dull night, clouded and safe. I turned again toward the uncertainties of life within doors. Once, night was a lion. No. Years ago, night was a python, weaving designs against space with undulations of his being, Night was a siren once. Oh, sodden, middle-aged night. That's how the... <laughs> I think that's a great last line. Sodden, middle-aged... Um, and so she actually published a book of her own. Uh, she published three or four books in the 20s.
But this, her first book is called Woman of 30 from Knopf, uh, 1919. And at the end of it is a, is, are all the Elijah Hay poems. Um, what's strange is on the title page you have her name and then um, you know, Marjorie Allen Seifert. And then below it it says, and poems of Elijah Hay. And it occupies a strange place. Like, is it another author? Is it her? It's pretty unclear. And then sitting across from that title page is um, ads for other poetry books back when they did that more often. Um, I don't think poets would let people do that anymore. Like, no other poetry book besides this one exists. Um, um, but there's uh, Whaley's uh, 170 Chinese Poems. And funny enough, Witter Binner's own The Beloved Stranger, which was a poetry sequence that he had begun as Morgan, um, and then he turned it into his own. Uh, and I have a longer section trying to tease out this idea of the Asian poetry that I think really mu very much influences modernism. And they're partially parroting that in Spectra, but I think they've also on to something. And later, Binner himself, as you can see, uh, would translate Chinese poetry. I think it's influenced is really important. Um, here's another Hay poem that I think is important to know. <laughs> it's called Of Mrs. Z. Madam, you are ever retreating, but are never gone. Someday I shall pursue you, hoping to see you vanish. It becomes clear how many of Hay's poems address women, including one poem with the hilarious title, Nightmare After Talking to Womanly Women in ways that almost predict Smith's critical oversight. Uh, Jay Smith, who did that Spectra hoax book, left her out completely. Hayes, oh, pretty much the poems. Hayes' mask, or rather Seifert's parody, is not just modernism or belated romanticism, but that other persistentism, sexism. The trick worked even better than anticipated. William Carlos Williams would strike up a correspondence with Hay, where he offered up complaints about the woman Kanish's failings. She apparently took things far too seriously. Seifert's response to Binner indicates the ironies of verse-making light being told to lighten up. Quote, what a wonderful argument for the feminist cause that we poor women cannot take our verses in a lighter vein. This is in 1916, but it sounds familiar. The woman vanishes in order not to. Art can make hay after all. Art can also make good. If I was telling you a set menu of things to mine for your own poetry, hoax or no, it would be to do both. Make hay as in have fun, become ecstatic, while also making fun of your ecstasy, and make good. To see how we must contemplate a poetry that's not a hoax that responds to one, we can think of Cornelius Eadie's brutal imagination. Um, I don't think I have enough time to go in depth in it too much, but as you probably know, it's a book that imagines um, the voice and or gives voice to the imagined black man that killed Susan Smith's children. You'll recall that she um, cla claimed that a black man had carjacked her, left her kids in the car, and disappeared, and it turns out she had herself killed the kids. Um, now, I think it... it I think it's, it was, I remember hearing about it, and I was in New York, and hearing it over the radio or something, and saying, that just doesn't, that doesn't make sense. I don't think, that, I don't believe it. Um, and it's not like I was psychic. It's just that I think there were all these codes that would prevent someone, um, a guy, a black guy seeking a simple theft to leave a mother alive and take her kids unknowingly, um, and it would have to be invite a lynching of one kind or another. Um, and for Cornelius Eady, 
it's a way, I think, of the getting at this phantom black man who sort of lurks between Susan Smith, but also, if you'll remember, in 1989, Charles Stewart, who did something similar, uh, which led to a lot of sweeps in Boston of neighborhoods and false arrests and problems for people. Um, and I lived in Boston at the time. Smith's fake abductor is not just a black man, but a bete noir, a black beast straight after, after, out of Stereotype 101, complete with knit cap, white lips, and one presumes just out of frame minstrel gloves. In Brutal Imagination, the imaginary black man actually speaks. His poems are testimonies from the invisible, haunted by this imaginary's voice and vision, clear and omnipresent. His preface does the other opposite of most hoaxes, which have this kind of elaborate preface material. It doesn't claim art, but specifies who's speaking. He, uh, to explore this predicament of the imagined, Edie also uses the voice of, quote, Charles Stewart in the hospital and Uncle Tom in heaven. Uncle Tom, Edie reminds us, is a fiction who nevertheless has been made real, always threatening as an insult or imaginary role black folks might fall into. So I'll read a few of his sort of, of this beautiful sequence. I watch another black man pour from a white woman's head. Fear he'll live the way I did, a brute, a flimsy ghost of an idea, both of us groomed to go only so far. What's more troubling uh, than Smith's invention is the fact, like most ghosts, others reported sightings of the imaginary black man. In the Stewart case, police have even arrested a perfect scapegoat quickly thrown in jail. Such phantom sightings indicate the hoaxes are contagious. How quickly can what we suspect become manifest, made real? I watch another black man roam the land, dull in his invented hide, Edie says, or has his imaginary figure says. He gives ways to which hoaxing can make grown men, actual men, worry about their speech and ambition for fear they might get conflated with such a phantom. This is another part. When called, I come. My job is to get things done. I am piecemeal. I make my living by taking things. There's another poem called My Heart. Susan Smith has invented me because no one else in town will do what she needs me to do. I mean, jump in an idling car and drive off with two sad and frightened kids in the back. Like a bad lover, she has given me a poisoned heart. It pounds both our ribs, black, angry, nothing but business. Since her fear is my blood and her need part mythical, everything she says about me is true. This truth, a halfway thing that stands in for a kind of whole, is what the hoax insists on. Like the non-existent man that Smith invented and Edie imagines, the result can prove deadly. Um, in the case of Smith, smart investigators saved time after they sort of did some sweeps and were arresting people, uh, and they avoided more difficulty in the community in the South by ascertaining, getting her to confess, confess that she had in fact killed her own children, driving their car into a lake with them strapped in the back seat. It is almost too much to imagine. The hoax often emerges at exactly the moment of the unimaginable. What actually happens proves hard to believe, which is not to say hard to prove, and the hoax steps in. 
And probability is the hoax, the sort of standard hoax, not necessarily the poetry hoax, is bread and butter. Rather than building up the truth, the hoax denies it, making unreality, say, sorry, making reality unreal as it may sometimes feel. Though built on disbelief, the hoax rarely trades in uncertainty. With the hoax, certitude is exactly what we should be wary of, a healthy skepticism being one of our most important tools. What seems really lost lately in writing, whether hoax or otherwise, is a culture of accountability and a tradition of empathy. It's a newfound radical departure from the expansive yet intimate eye of the 19th century. Lines like, I am the man, I suffered, I was there. Or, call me Ishmael. Or, I'm nobody, who are you? Too many readers and writers confronted with Whitman's song of myself get only the self part. Today, like always, the best writers of our time focus on the song as a form of self. So I'm going to talk just and end with um, one last hoax. And I want to think more about this idea of the song as a form of self. A pro tip. If you receive a manuscript from an unknown poet, like the one Max Harris did in the fall of 1943 in his office in Australia's Adelaide University, claiming no biography, no drafts, no history, beware. <laughs> this is what some of what the letter said. These poems are complete. There are no scoria or unfulfilled intentions. Every note and revision has been destroyed. There is no biographical data. This is the hoaxer's chief stance. I found this thing. I'm merely the editor or humble translator. I don't know nothing about birth and no hoaxes. <laughs> again and again, the hoaxer refers to someone somewhere else, preferably dead, who cannot be confirmed and who cannot deny what is being said is true. Dead men tell no tales, but sometimes that's all live folks do. Harris was already the dashing and influential editor of Angry Penguins. This is the cover of Angry Penguins, the delightfully surreal literary magazine that looks less like a dour journal than a glossy monthly. You can't tell, but it's magazine size, um, complete with color covers and a magazine format. Named after a line of his own poetry, Angry Penguins in turn named a group of friends and followers. So the Angry Penguins was a movement in Australia that sought to turn Australia on its head. His goal and the group's was nothing less than to bring modernism in the arts to Australia. Um, this is in the 40s, mind you, which still must have seemed isolated to the world and to the penguins themselves. Like many other poetry hoaxes, it first appears to be anti-modern, a way of making poems modern, sorry, a way of saying that modern poems are simply a drunken exercise. They, too, got kind of drunk and wrote these poems. Um, and one of the sources of the poems was like a mosquito inspection guide um, but the Mally hoax reveals the way in which modernism is deeply romantic, still dependent on the idea of a uniquely gifted, even unappreciated genius author. So Ern Mally, they said, was uh, uh, a man who, uh, I think he was an insurance inspector, and he would go door to door, and they composed these poems, and they had these working-class roots, and then he had died quite young. Um, and then they concocted a sister named Ethel Mally who writes to... Uh, Max Harrison says, here are these poems. I don't know if they're worth anything. And um, he loved them. And um, this is the issue of the magazine he dedicated, as you can see, to commemorate the Australian poet Ern Malley. 
And as the issue is hitting the stands, it starts to become clear it's a hoax. Um, it's Mally's early death, his working class roots, that helped capture the angry penguin's imagination and love with lostness. Mally's poems themselves promote the idea. This is a poem called Petite Testament. In the 25th year of my age, I find myself to be a dromedary that has run short of water between one oasis and the next mirage. And having despaired of ever making my obsessions intelligible, I am content at last to be the sole clerk of my metamorphoses. Here's the tension in both Ern Malley and Spectra. To do something anti-modern, the hoaxers had to do that frequent modern thing and collaborate. Following both unwittingly and single-mindedly, or is it double-mindedly, in the footsteps of the surrealists, they managed to create a set of voices that were not only convincing, but conning and cunning, too. Most importantly, they created voices that last, even threatening to outlast not just those they hoaxed, but their creators. There are some who say that Ern Malley is one of the best poets Australia has ever produced. The people who joked me, with me about that were Australian themselves. Of course, there are far many uh, interesting poets, but it can be said that Ern Malley has been especially influential. Um, here's another uh, sort of famous passage from the Ern Malley. I had read in books that art is not easy, but no one warned that the mind repeats in its ignorance the vision of others. I am still the black swan of trespass on alien waters. Um, and that passage is so great because it does two things. One, it's clearly like, if you know it's a hoax, it's all about the hoax. Um, art is not easy. No one's warned me. The mind repeats the, in its ignorance, the vision of others. But this idea of the black swan of trespass um, actually later names a um, study of Australian poetry. Um, and it resonates today. Um, they the black swan, the pair conjured through machinations, is fragmented form manages to be both funny and profoundly moving in places, transforming and fooling the tuxedoed angry penguins into taking flight, transforming what once was thought fanciful into full-fledged reality. Now, the, the cover I showed you, um, it's inspired by Mally, and it was painted by Sidney Nolan, who is probably Australia's most famous painter. Um, and he painted, for instance, the Ned Kelly gang, the famous outlaws from Australia. Um, and he paints Ned Kelly's helmet in this black, kind of almost faux naive way. Um, and this is from, this image here is one from the uh, reissue of the Ern Malley poems in like 1972. I love that image. Um, so Ern, uh, Max Harris gets this letter. He shares it with the other angry penguins, including Sidney Nolan. They go kind of crazy for it. They publish um, that issue you saw. Um, it comes out that it's fake. And the hoaxers, who are Harold Stewart um, and a guy named Macaulay, they, you know, it starts to become obvious. They were gonna, planning to, like, send him more stuff, including collages that they had made that are sort of absurdist, modernist collages. Um, but the cover came off. Um, and I'll, I'll just mention that as a way of thinking about um, poetry. As the popularity grew, so did suspicions that he did not exist. The hoaxers had planned to reveal a set of collages, actually done by Stuart, with titles like Proteus Rising from the Sea, 
Mad Hattery, and Malice in Underland. It's my favorite one. That weren't just smarty pants literary references, but deep pantsings meant to moon their viewer. They were made up, as I said, of from Blake, images from Dali, abandoned lines of the poet's own, and even an American report on the drainage of breeding grounds and mosquitoes. Um, so the, it gets revealed. It's in the newspaper. It was really front page news because the angry penguins were very popular, but there was clearly a kind of both a schadenfreude and a jealousy. Um, but what was interesting to me is Harris responded the only way he knew how. He still stood by the poems. He recounted the controversy gamely at the book publication of the entire Mali manuscript called The Darkening Ecliptic, later in 1944. <clears throat> and he said in that introduction, the poems were very well received in the community, but shortly after their publication, it was revealed that through the press that there was no such person as Ern Mali, and that the two poets who together claimed to have written the poems had done so for the express purpose of exposing the modern literary movement. He also reprinted the poems and his introduction to the original issue verbatim, a bold move suggesting them not just worthy of book publication and his original praise, but that this, quote, unknown mechanic and insurance peddler as one of the most outstanding poets that we have produced here. What's interesting is... Um, I can't believe this part of the story, is that um, you can't always control what happens when you do a hoax. And as I said, it also can sort of be contagious to you. He unbelievably, Max Harris, was brought up on obscenity charges for publishing the poems. He was pursued by an incompetent and overeager, same thing, uh, police and attorneys. To reiterate, he was arrested and tried about the meaning of nonsense poems from a fake poet. So they knew it was fake by that point. But the meaningless had become fit filled with meaning, not just for the artists who initially felt Ern Malley heroic, but to those who saw in nonsense obscenity. The hoax had spun into satire of the most serious kind. Soon it would seem that the justice system and the court, which I'll refrain from calling a kangaroo court, would insist on the hoax's status as an erring document, much as the forger must. He now was standing by the poems as literature in order to say that they weren't obscenity. Though he was convicted and fined five pounds, he avoided prison, yet he was unnerved and both the journal and the group Angry Penguins effectively derailed, though not before publishing a follow-up issue with praise from others for Malley's poems. He would a few years later go on to publish a journal called the Earn Malley's Journal. And um, I think the, the, what's fascinating to me is the afterlife of Ern Malley, um, and this way that the ho poetic hoax can also beget actual art. Um, and I think Sidney Nolan asked the question, or begs the question, I don't think he asked it, can you paint a real painting about a fake poem? Yes, it turns out. And for Harris, Sidney Nolan, and others, the discovery of Ern Malley continued to uh, resonate. Parodies of modernism often do modernism make. Other readers have found their way to Mali, not least of which the New York school poets who would publish Locus Solus from Paris in 1961, including a second issue of collaborations that includes two poems by Mali and then afterward by Koch praising those poems. The story goes that when teaching, John Ashbery would often pass out several poems saying one was by a modern poet and the other by someone making fun of modernism written by Ern Mali. Answers would, and he would ask them to guess which was which. Answers would end up practically 50-50. Uh, 
And I think of that quote from Anchorman, they've done studies, you know, 60% of the time it works every time. <laughs> the poetry hoax lingers like bad cologne. But there's a pleasure, I think, that the poetry hoax offers us once we know the hoax has uh, happened or we know it, what happened and that we love sort of to be tricked, but not the one who's tricked, of course. Um, but I think they can have enjoyed either Ern Malley or Elijah Hay or the Spectre poets and the drawings and further art the poetry inspires. And I think back to, and I don't have time, I'm going to wrap up, um, the romantics who very much embraced um, earlier poets like Chatterton who had faked and uh, died and the sort of fake poets who came about um, before them. They embraced them as artists. And I do want to think about this idea that these particular poetry hoaxes remain compelling because for a brief moment they imagine the self not as an exoticist other, but the self, the other as a viable self. And the readers of Mali were in love with what could have been and eager to make up for what wasn't there yet or at all. But today we can also see that the world, all the world would not be without Mali. Without Mali, we wouldn't have Sidney Mullen's Kelly Gang paintings or The True Life of the Kelly Gang by Peter Carey, nor Peter Carey's My Life as a Fake, which reimagines the Ern Mali affair as a tale of horror. The accident of art, Carey's novel reminds us, can sometimes bring to life troubling things, living beasts, giant beings, monsters who want a birth certificate and even a passport. Once its false bio falls away, can the utterance that's left, what we call a poem, still be called at least simply a hoax? Can you have real feelings about fake art? The difficulty comes, of course, when the feelings are reliant on autobiography. Much as we try, we believe the I to be related at least to the self who wrote it. But often the self, self is crafted, created, as perhaps best seen in a poem, any poem, whose true DNA is not words but breath, not meter but movement, not reality but truth. Above all, the poetry hoax brings us closest to other aspects of the creative process that can often seem half-accidental, semi-serious, unbidden. The stakes for any poem, real or faked, are not monetary riches, but immortality. The poetry hoax reminds us such immortality is ironically achieved by immediacy. And just how is immediacy achieved? That's the million-dollar question. What signals change in poetry is always changing, when it usually doesn't mean doing the same things in the same way. And uh, I think the poetry hoaxes, they're making fun of the newness, but they end up doing something new themselves. For you, my future hoax poets, it means allow your poetry a life of its own. More than heteronyms like Pessoa used, I mean an autotomy, a life of its own and may, that may not need us, or does only to get written, or to get made, which may not mean writing, but finding. May mean lying, not to others, but to the self who says poetry cannot be this way, or pretends it knows what one's own poetry is before it's even written. See your poem as in collaboration with not just your life, but your imagination, and may take being someone else to write something at all. Was it Robert Frost who called a poem, quote, a momentary stay against confusion? Ern Malley and these other hoax poets are a momentary confusion that stays. This is what I want to urge on you, writing a poetry not afraid of chaos, but confronting it, 
not controlling, but improvising, not speaking for anyone else, but as someone else, you invent, feel, impersonate, interpolate, and collaborate, either with one another or with the poetry of our age or, you know, mosquito manuals or whatever gets you there. The hoax typically happens when we have too much belief or not enough. Not in an all-powerful, abstract, almighty, mind you, but in our own ability to recognize the truth. The stress, if not its muscle, then its bond, much less art. The poetry hoax, in other words, is an act of faith. In this, it resembles poems more generally. It often seems to have less relation to the hoax more generally, or at least as practiced in the 20th and 21st centuries, where the modern hoax often says, believe in me begs you to. The poem does, dares you not to believe in it, whispers, ignore me at your peril. Or is, that, or is it that the modern poem pretends not to care, and the poetry hoax takes care to appear it's not pretending? In the end, all good poetic hoaxes know what all good poets do, that poetry doesn't really matter, and in this way is the most important thing in the world. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Tin House Live. You can find more of Kevin Young's work at kevinyoungpoetry.com and at the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode of Between the Covers, whether as a first-time or a long-time listener, consider supporting the show. Find out the various rewards and perks of being a supporter, from bonus audio to becoming a Tin House early reader, at patreon.com slash between the covers i'd like to thank the tin house team elizabeth DeMeo and alisa ogi in the book division jacob valla and jeremy cruz in the art department yeshwina Cantor in publicity and lance cleland the director of the summer and winter tin house writers workshops for helping making the podcast run as smoothly as it does Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.